Welcome to Firearm Trainers Podcast, part of ConcealedCarry.com Network. I'm your host, Rob Beckman. Today, we'll be talking about strategies and standards for handgun training. We bring this podcast to support the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. This episode is also brought to you by our friends at the FTA, the Firearm Trainers Association. Head on over to their website at ftaprotect.com and learn more about their instructor coverage they offer and their competitive pricing. Receive a special 10% off on your policy by entering promo code FTP10. This episode is brought to you by Mantis X. A couple of years ago, I came across Mantis X at a trade show. and saw a lot of potential for myself and my students in it. Now, I can do my own dry fire practice at home and get expert feedback on what I need to do to improve my own trigger press. But besides improving my own shooting, it also allows me to help my students by having them use the device on their firearm to augment my coaching. It's like having an expert shooting coach right next to me with a student on the range. They work out so well that I actually had a friend who borrowed mine, then paid me for it because he wouldn't give it back. Get yourself a Manus Axe and you'll see why it's such a valuable tool for improving your shooting and your students. Today, we are joined by Carl Wren from KR Training. Welcome, Carl. How are things going for you? Things are great. Great. Glad to hear that. Some of our listeners may not be completely familiar with who Carl Wren is. Can you give us a little uh, your background on what you do in the firearm industry? Sure. I uh, started out as a regional local trainer in the Austin, Texas area about 29 years ago. I've uh, been teaching mostly locally, hosting traveling trainers at my facility in Central Texas. Here in the last five years or so, I've been doing national training at Virginia, Louisiana, um, Washington, Oregon, Georgia, Anywhere, I, anywhere people want to bring me, I've been doing classes on the road, but mostly I still do still do most of my training at home. Got enough business there. I teach about 40 weeks a year at the house and uh, been a presenter at the Range Master Tactical Training Conference every year for the last 20 years or so. And uh, was on an episode of Outdoor Channel's uh, Shooting Gallery show here earlier this year. So uh, starting to get my name out there a little bit more on the national level. That's uh, really, really cool. I'm glad you made time for us today because I think we've got a really interesting topic kind of dovetails into some of our previous episodes we've had with other uh, guests on talking about training and getting people uh, interested in taking additional training. You and John Dobbs are the authors of strategies and standards for defensive handgun training. And this was uh, from your uh, presentations at Rangemaster, the TACCON. Yeah, basically, it's a collection of about five years worth of work, different presentations and things that uh, we had put together. John was a prolific blogger uh, and uh, was writing a lot of material for a while. He sort of slowed down on blogging, but uh, he had some really good material from his blog that we incorporated in the middle third of the book. And, and we wrote some original material, so it's not just a rehash. There's some new, new material that we wrote specifically for the book to kind of tie it all together and to uh, clean up some, some missing parts to make it kind of tell a complete story. Mm -hmm. Well, take us through a little bit, little bit of the book. What what did you find through your through five years of research and blogging uh, that'd be of interest to our instructors out there? Well, the the part that got the most attention, I think, that really the reason the book exists is a presentation I did a few years ago called Beyond the One Percent. Being a locally based trainer, mostly serving local students, the goal was okay. We've got 1.2 million permit holders in the state of Texas. Yet, if you look at the numbers, less than 10,000 of them actually go to training that isn't mandated by the state of Texas. 
And so naturally, you're trying to get more people to come to class. The question is, okay, why don't they come to class? What are the barriers? What motivates them? What kind of classes do they want? What length classes? What are their, uh, you know, even what's their threshold of pain in terms of pricing? And so trying to figure out how to promote my own classes and promote traveling trainers. Uh, a lot of it was really studying marketing, but also talking to my students and looking at trends, looking at what other, other people do that sells, look at what I do that sells, look at what's popular online, and trying to get a better feel for kind of understanding gun culture, particularly understanding motivating people to get into training. Then uh, the other parts of the book really came into a discussion that uh, Claude Werner and John Dobb and I have had going on for several years about what were the minimum acceptable standards, not state standards, but what are the real standards that someone should train to, to be well prepared to defend themselves. And then the last part of the book is, is tied back to my own effort. I'm, I'm now a five division grandmaster in USPSA. And in pursuing that particular goal, I had to go, go back and really break down courses to fire. USPSA has classifiers and yet there's certain high hit factors that you have to get on the classifier stages to score grandmaster level. And so I, I put a lot of time in breaking down those stages and figuring out, okay, draw time has to be this much, reload time has to be this much, shot to shot time at seven yards, shot to shot time at 15 yards, all of that. You have to sort of understand all that. Well, I started backward applying it in reverse to all the different courses of fire that people shoot, all the different standards that are out there, whether it's the FBI or the NRA, our own state carry permit. And basically, the last third of the book explains to anyone that, that is interested in it how to take any course of fire with a part-time or even without a part-time and figure out, okay, how fast do I have to shoot this to shoot at grandmaster level? Or, and then gets back into you know what's appropriate for instructors. If somebody's teaching defensive handgun, how good should they be? If someone's a law enforcement officer, how good should they be? Someone's an armed citizen, how good should they be? It all ties back into what are the standards. There's a lot of programs and a lot of standards. And what I tried to do is give people a framework to tie all those things together and really understand what standards and what certifications mean something and which ones don't. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've had a good time reading the book. Um, really interesting. Uh, one, one of the things I think, uh, maybe you can review a little bit for our listeners is what's meant by gun culture 1.0 and 2.0, because those are terms where I hadn't heard thrown, thrown around a whole lot until I started reading your book. And then everything started clicking because I'd heard Michael Bain talk about it. I heard other people talk about it. I never put a whole lot of thought into it until your book that actually went in and started explaining it in more in depth. Okay, well, all the credit really goes to Michael Bain for that. He coined that term, and I, I've been uh, a friend and a fan of Michael's for a long, long time, uh, his books, and even back when he was a rock journalist I'm, as a musician. You know, I used to read his rock journalism, his music writing as well. Uh, so basically the idea is gun culture 1.0, you know, Pa and Grandpa teach you how to shoot out in the back pasture and you hunt, and you've got your 38 revolver and your deer rifle. Uh, gun culture 2.0 is you watch videos on YouTube and you have your Glock and your AR-15 and you probably don't hunt or haven't had a chance to hunt and maybe you're the first gun owner in your family and you live in an urban area and your interest is concealed carry, your interest is uh, USPSA or IDPA competition and it's you're coming from sort of the whole modern perspective as opposed to the sort of traditional, you know, 1930s, 1940s traditional family hunting and fishing gun culture. It's just a different uh, different mindset. Gun culture 2.0 people are the ones that generally come to training. 
They're, they're not the ones that will say, I've owned a gun all my life and I don't need no training. Almost always, those are gun culture 1.0 people. Gun culture mm-hmm. 2.0 is, I, I want the next class. I want the new thing. I want to be the cool kid on the block. I'm going to, you know, grab my red dot and my appendix carry and my Roland special. And, and you know, that's, it's a different, it's a different uh, perspective on gun ownership. Yeah, and I, I would add to it, your 1.0s are the people that are still, still out hunting with, you know, the Woodstocks. And, you know, from a rifle shotgun perspective and your 2.0s are, like you said, are the Glocks or the ARs that are a lot of plastic and are used to certification, um, in their careers and such where you got to go back for additional training. But even there trying to get that 2.0 culture to come back to classes. Um, what did you find in your research, uh, when it comes to those breaking points and such to try to entice those 2.0s? Cause I know in my, in my own experience, I don't have a high percentage, uh, probably less than 10% that comes back for that, uh, the, those additional classes. Well, there's, there's a couple of things. Most of the people that get the carry permit, at least in Texas, many of them don't actually carry. They're, I only carry in the car people and, uh, or I only carry work in bad, bad areas. I like, right. I like that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Instead of not going to the bad area. Yeah. And, and those people, um, they're a challenge because honestly, they haven't really internalized the whole idea that they might actually have to shoot someone someday that they've done the half measure of getting the carry permit. And then they have their sort of their, their guns stuffed in the glove box that they won't ever really be able to get to in time. And the good news is if they have the gun and they can get it out, they'll probably be okay. Most situations, it doesn't take a tremendous amount of skill. The close range, you know, arms reach or, or a few steps away, you know, that the, around the, the car door. Um, but they're, they're not the ones, those people, it's a challenge to get them to come for anything more than the state requirement. However, if it looks like fun and it looks like an environment where they don't have to invest a lot of money in gear, I'll tell you one of the biggest things that we did is I have probably 70 loaner holsters. I have these plastic shoe boxes and I have a whole giant shelf full of plastic shoe boxes with all kinds of different gun models. And so a lot of times people will come to the next class where they learn to draw from a holster because they don't have to buy a holster to come learn how to draw from a holster. They come to class, they use a loaner holster, they get to see what a quality holster is like and they don't waste their money buying something that's junk in a bag on a hook at a retail store. And instead they get to see what the different holsters and different carry methods. And they kind of get an idea, okay, this might work for me. And some of those people, if we can get them to the range to draw, to draw from a holster from the first time and run some drills that go beyond the state minimum, they figure out, well, yeah, I can do this. And okay, I'm around all these other people that actually carry on a regular basis. Maybe it's not weird. Maybe everybody's not going to stare at me. Maybe I can make it work. And that, that helps to get some of those people over the hump. And there's other folks that, that are all gung-ho and they just they want to do more because they like shooting. You know, the other thing we have to realize is it, it's not all grim and misery and, and steely-eyed, you know, we're going to go out there and we're going to fight and die on the streets and all this. It's okay to say, hey, it's fun to shoot guns and come to the range and I've got steel targets and 3D targets and we're going to shoot some fun drills and we're going to let you do stuff that you can't do at the local indoor range because we're going to let you shoot faster than one shot per second, mm-hmm. right? We're going to let you, you know, load your magazines up full, you know, and we're going to let you run some drills to simply have fun shooting in a safe way. And if you can get them coming to the range, you can, you know, one of the comments I make in the book, you know, you can hide the medicine in the candy. 
right? So you can do We've done that with kids a lot of times too, right? Correct. Well, yep. it, it works for everybody. And mm-hmm. there's there's things that I don't like to do. I'm not a big fitness guy. I know I need to be. I know it's good for me. Uh, it's still, you know, going to the gym for me is not fun. Anything I can do to make physical exercise fun, I'm going to seek that out. It, even if it's not specifically related to, okay, I'm not necessarily training. I'm not doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and learning how to resist an arm bar or whatever. You know, if I'm just going to go do something to be physically active, to sweat and work my muscles, that's good. Uh, same thing with shooting. Everything doesn't have to be completely focused life or death training. If you can just get them to the range, get the gun in your hand, run it, load it, rack the slide, hit the targets, be safe, you know, any of that practice. So sometimes, you know, as one of my old bosses, my day job used to say, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. And so instead of saying you've got to have a 16 hour or two day tactical pistol class where you shoot a thousand rounds in the weekend, say, yeah, come out. We got a 150 round, four hour class. Mm -hmm. We got a two hour annual refresher, two hour tune up. We got a three hour correcting common shooting errors course. Come do that. Right. And just, we got a, a special revolver class. You got a revolver in the closet. Bring it. Let's go shoot revolvers for three or four hours. Which yeah. is which is different than semi-automatics. I, I correct that with people all the time that want to go along and think that the revolver is the simplest thing in the world. And it's like, no, it's can be a lot more complicated than a semi-automatic if you're it's, if you're not familiar with it. It's its own thing, and if you've got one, you should you know you can benefit. Learn how to run it a little better, run it a little faster, shoot it a little straighter. You know, everybody can improve with a little coaching. And a lot mm-hmm. of what we do is really not training as much as it is coaching. Certainly a lot of what we do in our classes, um, I run a large assistant instructor team. We run one instructor for every four students. And sometimes we run more than that. And uh, so, you know, people come out and they get a lot of individual coaching. And so, uh, you know, a lot of it comes down to you've got to make the case to the customer, what can we do for you and what are you going to get out of it and not, not, doesn't always have to be as serious as some trainers want to make it, you know, make it accessible, particularly like us, we're local. And my idea is if I can see you six times a year for two hours of a trip or three hours a trip, that's awesome. You know, that's maybe average people. A lot of people do not have two days and $500. They just don't mm-hmm. they can't get away from the wife, the kids, the dog, the job, whatever it is, or they just flat don't have the money. Yeah. Right. And ammo is not free travel, ammo, yep. tuition, right? But if I can get a hundred bucks out of you three times a year, well, that's training that you got that you wouldn't have never, would never have been able to get had you only had two day, $500 traveling trainer courses. Mm-hmm. So I think that part of it is just simply for those of us that teach at the local level, we've got to break it down. Quit, quit trying to make all your money in the weekend and understand that there's a whole two or three, 5% of the carry permit people that will come out for a two or three hour class that will never show up for a two day, $500 course. They're just mm-hmm. not going to do it. And if that's the only thing you offer them, then they're never going to show up. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Quick question for you. Some of our instructors out there might be going along and thinking, you know, when you were talking about those shoe boxes full of holsters and things like that, um, did you buy all those holsters or how did you get so many holsters to uh, loan out? Oh, goodness. Um, so some of them I purchased. Um, occasionally, you will find really good deals. Uh, can I plug some companies that I found really good deals from? Yeah. They're right not ahead. sponsors, but um, CDNN, LA Police Gear. Uh, there's a few other places like that that will have blowout sales, scratch and dent. 
you know, uh, a lot of times I will have students that will offer me old host holsters that they purchased that they're not using in trade for trade credit for tuition. And so I'll take holsters in trade. I have people that, that will say, yeah, yeah, I got rid of my Springfield XD and I'm switching over to this other gun. And I've got three XD holsters that are all pretty good that I'm not going to use. And the buyer that bought the gun didn't want the holsters. And so I'm like, yeah, I'll take them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes, honestly, sometimes I just buy the holsters. Uh, a lot of times I'll buy holsters that I want to evaluate for my own use. And, uh, you know, or I need a specialty holster. I needed an appendix carry holster to learn more about it and practice with it and everything. So I got a Spencer, uh, Spencer Keepers, Keepers Concealment Holster. And uh, so I got one of those to work with. Yeah, one and thing I, so, I – or go, go ahead, Carl. Uh, you know, I just considered it an investment. Uh, I figured that that's marketing. It's, it's the same kind of I spend money on buying a holster – it's the same thing as running an ad on the internet because having those holsters, people come to class, you'd be surprised how, how that's been a factor that word of mouth. Hey, I heard from my buddy, you've got loaner holsters. I don't want to buy anything. It's a bigger issue than people realize. And I, there's very few trainers that do it. And I've been in a lot of traveling trainer classes. People showed up with gear that wasn't satisfactory on the road as a student with other, other courses. And uh, the traveling trainers don't like it. It's hard for them when people show up with unsafe gear, holsters that collapse, holsters that don't cover the trigger guard, all kinds mm-hmm. of things. Um, yeah. so they are when I bring people into my range for classes uh, and their students that haven't trained with us before, they like the fact that I have all that gear on hand and can support them that way too. So. Yeah, holsters, you know, cost you fifty to one hundred and fifty dollars, you know, for a reasonable holster. And that's, that's where um, it can be a significant investment, uh, but you want your students to see what a quality holster is. I know one place I've, uh, I've been lucky at times is if you go around to the NRA convention and uh, USCCA Expo and such and talk to the holster manufacturers there, sometimes you'll be able to pick up samples or right. be able to go along and work out you know, some, some kind of instructor program with them. And that's right. where it always pays to ask because, yes, you can't go out and, and yourself you know, drop several thousand dollars on holsters tomorrow. But if you go along and, and how long have you been training, Carl? 29 years. So you've been collecting for a while. Yes. Um, and, yeah. And that, that didn't that's just show up yesterday. Yeah. And that, and that's where you just make it incremental. I mean, 10 years ago, we had never gotten a SIG 320 holster, but exactly it, the SIG 320s are out there. Now we're seeing more and more of them in classes. So guess what? We take the revolver holsters and we push them a little bit further behind because we don't have any main people with revolvers. And we started getting the SIG 320s, the, uh, yep. the bodyguards, all, the, all those types of things. That's uh, exactly right. And often, if I, if I end up in a situation, you know, three or four times, students come, hey, you don't have a holster for this? I'm like, oh, okay. And so I put on my, you know, my Christmas list, okay, I got to find a holster for this. And, and yeah, sometimes I find... I, you know, for free plug to a couple of companies I just started doing business with, uh, Concealment Express, I ended up getting one of my students got a holster from them and really liked it. I got set up as a dealer through them and their dealer pricing on holsters. They are reasonable quality Kydex holsters that are like 30 bucks. And for loaner holsters for, for class, they're, they work pretty good. You know, there's a few, even Raven, Raven has a holster called the Morrigan that you can reconfigure to be right-handed or left-handed. And, uh, it's like 30 bucks on Amazon. It was that's, my that's, that's a really nice, uh, option so bill have. there are some deals out there. The other company I'll put a, a free plug in for, if you're listening for guys, you know, if any of these vendors, Hey, you know, happy to help out. Um, CompTAC makes it, they call it the Q series and they, uh, 
the holsters fit a variety of guns. So like the, the Q holster will fit the Glock, the M&P, and the Walther. And so it's a one. It's not one size fits all. It's it's a size fits some. But those Q series holsters, again, they uh, you can flip them around to be right handed or left handed by changing the screws. And if you're an instructor and you listen to this podcast and you're looking for something to buy, I would tell you those Q series holsters. A couple of those Q series holsters are absolutely worth the money because they have inside and outside the waistband. They have three or four different models, and they fit probably thirty different handgun types. And that's if you're looking for the universal can opener on a holster for a loaner holster, uh, those are awesome. I have a bunch of those. I will include uh, these references also in the show notes so people can go and uh, uh, find out where these uh, retailers are and such. Um, because I think it's good to be able to know where, where to get quality gear at, um, especially when you're an instructor. And it's not necessarily for yourself, but it's for your students and you want to save a little money, uh, put it simply. Something you you brought up, Carl, and want to touch on it because I think your your whole philosophy of going along and doing smaller classes and bite sized chunks for our students and such. How do you go along and approach the issue of safety? Um, you know, when it comes to drawing from a holster, obviously we want people that are already safe with with the pistol. You know, they they pass the concealed carry, but what? How do, how do you go along and make sure when they do the move and shoot, when they go along and they're going to start, you know, working around cover, making sure that they've got the proper basis if they're coming there for just a short amount of time. If I've gotten there all weekend, I can spend more time with them and building those skills, but if they're only there for a four-hour course, how do you go along and assess that those uh, risks and the safety situations there? Well, the, the magic there is you have to accept that there's only so much you can teach in four hours and you have to set some very specific learning objectives and you have to limit what you teach. And the way my program is set up, I have about a dozen different classes and we have a 40 hour challenge coin. And so to finish the whole program, then if you pass all the required courses, and then I have some elective, a variety of electives people can pick between to fill out their kind of their little college degree 40 hour program. Uh, but in order to get the challenge coin, you have to pass the shooting test, the graduation test at the 90% level. And so different, some classes have prereqs. So for example, if they only have the carry permit, everybody has to start with defensive one. And a pretty much the only skill we really teach in defensive one is drawing from a holster. And so we start out working from the ready position then we start out working from, if, it's, if you teach a four count draw, but then we work, they teach them to go from position two to the target. So instead of having the gun at the ready position, they take both hand, they take a support hand off the gun and they've got the gun in the dominant hand up next to the rib cage. So then they join their hands, go to the target. Once they're good with that, then we have them put the gun in the holster and they start with their hand on the gun and the other hands up and they draw. So they basically learn to draw like position three to four, then position two to three to four, then position one to two to three to four. Then we work on getting from wherever your hands are, getting to position one. So we teach the draw in incremental process and we don't proceed to the next piece until we're comfortable with them working. We sort of work backward into the holster. And so the end of class, then they're working open carry from the holster. And really they don't get serious about concealed carry until the next block of training because there's just not time. Mm -hmm. And honestly, the, the problem we run into with the garments is they bring often garments that are very difficult to work with. They, they don't understand what they need or they're wearing an outside the waistband holster with like an untucked tight fitting t-shirt and they're pulling the t-shirt over the gun in a way that you would never use it out in public. And so it usually takes a little bit of calibration to say, okay, 
when you come back for the next class with concealed carry, if you're going to wear that outside the waistband holster, then you need a vest or a jacket or something, you know, kind of, you're not willing to wear this down the street and go to the restaurant and have dinner, then it's not really the gear you should be using if you're ready for the next phase. But we can teach everybody to draw from open carry. And, and that's, they need to start there because if they're going to mess up, it's when they get the garment out of the way and they're fumbling around trying to get the grip on the gun. And uh, we don't rush them into that because mm-hmm. they have the fundamentals right before they add and make things more complex. Well, and I think, I think the one thing that's really ingenious and in how you, how you schedule the courses there is you have them in small blocks. So if for some reason they, they feel I, you know, I can draw from a holster fine. You, they can still go through it. It's a nominal cost. It's only four hours worth of training. They they've got to go through to make sure they're drawing from the from an open carry holster effectively before they get into the concealed carry. And they're small incremental steps uh, well, for, that that aren't real expensive. Many of those classes uh, have tests they have to pass. Mm-hmm. So you can't take our level two the next four hours of training. You can't take the level two classes unless you pass the level one class. So every four hours, essentially, they've got a little test they have to pass, and they don't progress in the program until they actually meet the standards, which means that in each step in the program, I don't have to do remedial work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, right? uh, that, I think that's really ingenious. I, uh, I've some- talked to, to a number of big national trainers that they offer like, like a level two class or an advanced class, and often they get there, and the people coming to the advanced class, yeah, they passed the level one class three years ago. <laughs> but they haven't practiced or done anything since the level one class. And they're like, well, I passed at level one three years ago. I'm ready for level two. And what they find, of course, is that the level two class ends up being a full day of review of level one just to get people back up to speed before they can even cover the new level two material. Uh, so, you know, prerequisites, prerequisites really do matter. And everybody thinks they're more advanced than they are. No matter how good you are, everybody, everybody's convinced that they're uh, more advanced I'm teaching a class on the road now called advanced handgun and some of the people that show up really are advanced and some of them uh, are taking it because it's available and they're probably needed in their immediate class, but the advanced one's available. So they take it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, which leads into a really good, uh, the second section of your book, um, talking about the minimum standards or competency for defensive pistol. Um, can you touch on that a little bit? Cause I think from a, I'm always, wanting to make sure that from a concealed carry standpoint, uh, I tell instructors that I teach and the students I teach, I want them to be competent enough that they could be standing behind me or my family in a Walmart. And I don't have to worry about if something goes wrong, them knowing how to uh, effectively shoot around me. And I think that's one of those, uh, that's a personal standard that I've had, but I want to hear what your, you know, what your thoughts are on minimum competency. Well, they're probably not as high as what you described, to be, to be brutally honest. Um, probably the simplest answer of that would be the 5x5 five five drill, the original Gila Hayes, um, five shots, five inches, five yards, five seconds. If, if you had to just go with one thing that was the simplest possible basic standard, if you, you get, put a NRA B8 target up or a five or six inch paper plate up there and you say, okay, I'm going to blow the whistle. You draw your pistol and you shoot five shots, you get five seconds and they all have to land in the circle. Um, You know, that's probably the absolute simplest minimum standard. If somebody can do that, Uh, you know, John's section of the book, he goes into the speeds and the skills and everything, you know, the reloads, do they have to be able to do a two second speed reload? Probably not. Should they be able to shoot dominant hand only? Yeah, they should. 
should they be able to clear malfunction? Yes, they should. You know, there's certain things that they absolutely have to be able to do. Uh, Claude Werner, he has a, a great book out called Serious Mistakes Gun Owners Make. If you haven't read that, I strongly, strongly recommend it. Claude went through, looked at lots of different scenarios and situations. And, you know, the things that get people killed generally as gun owners, it's not a slow draw. It's not even poor shooting. It's poor, poor gun handling, unsafe gun handling, and poor decision making. And so really, when you get down to what are the skills that people need, if you look at the mistakes that they make and the training they need to prevent those mistakes, beyond the safe gun handling and shooting to a minimum competency, a lot of the skills they need are not shooting skills. But that goes back to the motivation. We like to take two-day weekend-long training classes because it's happy, fun, shooty time with our gun toys, right? And we mm -hmm. like to shoot a lot, yet most of the time, what we really need is decision-making how to think with a gun in our hand, how to make the shoot, don't shoot decision, how to communicate, all the other stuff. That's why we do force on force training and some of the other things in our program. But, but yeah, the other thing you have to have is confidence to act. And if you don't have confidence to act, you're not going to act. And if you don't have confidence in your skills, you're not going to carry. So having the confidence that you can draw the pistol out, draw it and get reasonable hits in a reasonable amount of time, that makes a difference. So it's it's all tied in there together. They do need a minimum standard. They need that confidence to believe they can do it uh, and going on the street. You know, realistic higher standards. You know, the the uh, we designed a test and it's in the book called the three seconds or less test. And uh, being lazy, we designed it so that every string had the same part time. Unlike most qualification courses, as an instructor, if you're out there and you have to change the part time on the timer for every string on the test. I found that annoying and, and difficult. So instead, what we did was we set a part-time. We said, well, most gunfights are going to be over in you know, three seconds. So what can you accomplish in three seconds? And so each string of the test tests a different skill, but it's all scaled backward to say, okay, you have three seconds. How much work can you do? That's, that's, that's really great. It's convenient for running the test, but it also, from a, a mindset, it's okay, this is, this is what I'm going to be able to do in three seconds. And I think that's useful too. that mm -hmm. under, understanding. There's a few other tests that are out there like that. There's one called the five yard roundup uh, that was published in SWAT magazine. That's quite good. That's the same kind of thing. Two and a half second part time. And you've got different skills to do. Uh, it's uh, those I think are useful because you're not going to have extra time. You know, you're only going to be able to do as much work as, as your opponent gives you time to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Well, Carl, I think we could probably talk for a couple hours, um, on the book and everything else like that, but, um, we've kind of gotten to the end of our, our 30 minutes here and I want to give you a chance, uh, to, where can our listeners go along and find out more about Carl Wren and KR training? Well, the easiest one is krtraining.com, which has our schedule and it has a link where they can buy an autographed copy of the book signed by John and I will ship it direct to you. You can also get the book on Amazon if you want the digital version or if you want an unsigned print version, they're available there on Amazon. And then uh, I write a lot on blog.krtraining.com. And uh, as I mentioned, one of the other projects I have, I'm writing a book on the history of handgun training, the evolution of handgun training. And uh, I've got a lot of material there about that and also uh, classes that I've attended, classes I've hosted, Anything that interests me, uh, Facebook, we always have a lot of activity. I, I post on Facebook almost every day, links to interesting articles or commentary, different things like that. So uh, Facebook, uh, KR Training Texas on Facebook, the blog.krtraining.com or krtraining.com.
Okay. That's, uh, that's great to hear. And I will, uh, make sure those get in the show notes so people can uh, go out there and find your book as well as your uh, training schedule. We're coming up in case they want to uh, travel down to Texas there, or if they see that you're coming around to their part of the, uh, part of their state, uh, want to try to get some training from you. Cool. Yeah. I will be at, uh, this coming up this next year, I'll be in Oregon and Washington in July. I'll be in Virginia in June. Uh, working on some other classes going back to Georgia. Hopefully we'll be in Colorado in uh, May for the Girl on the Gun National Conference. And I'll be presenting at the Range Master Tactical Conference in March, again, for my 21st or 22nd year. I've lost count how many times I've taught at that event, but I'll be up there again as an invited instructor. Very neat. Very neat. Well, that's a wrap for this episode, everyone. We have a few requests like to ask you to follow us, encourage other instructors to follow us on social media, subscribe to our podcast, uh, Instagram and Twitter. Remember if they're not following us, they can't get this great information. Leave us a review on Google play or iTunes or wherever you listen to the podcast app. Also go along, visit our sponsors, especially our, FT, especially the firearm trainers association, ftaprotect.com and check out their instructor insurance. Remember to use, discount code FTP10 for 10% off at checkout. If you have any questions, ideas, feedback on this episode or other episodes, feel free to email us at FTP at concealedcarry.com. Remember, we bring you this podcast to support the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. Schedule your, tr your training and stay safe, everyone. Concealed Carry Inc. and ConcealedCarry.com strives to share helpful information and education about gun-related topics, training tips, and other things that may potentially have legal implications for its listeners. The information contained in this podcast is intended in good faith, but it is important to understand that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand laws that apply to them. Nothing in this podcast should be misconstrued as legal advice or counsel.